0: Thank you, Um, I'm gonna start briefly and then turn it over to Kate in a minute. So this webinar is about, um, really it's about accessing the community health choices waiver. But during COVID, this can be quite critical because we know that people in nursing facilities have been more harmed by the COVID outbreak than anybody else in this state and being able to, get out of or avoid a nursing home is really critical and Community Health Choices waiver is one way to be able to get out into the community in order to get the assistance you need that you would have been getting in a nursing facility. So this is really a critical time for avoiding nursing facility care And that's why we wanted to present this so we could help people understand what their clients need to do to get on the waiver and where they can go for help, which is uh, both of our organizations. So I am Amy Lowenstein from the Pennsylvania Health Law Project. I'm a supervising attorney and Pennsylvania Health Law Project is a statewide nonprofit legal organization. We are sort of a legal support Um, And our focus is on health access and health coverage. We have a free helpline for clients through which we provide advice and legal representation. We do not have income limits. We're not LSC funded, uh, so we don't have any of the LSC restrictions. That doesn't mean we can help everybody and there are some people who we do refer to the private bar if they have enough resources, but it does mean that we can be a referral resource for um, LSC programs who have, whose restrictions prevent them from helping somebody. We also do a significant amount of technical assistance to other programs and attorneys and advocates, and we do this within Pennsylvania. We also work with um, our national partners um, to work together to improve access to health services and um, health coverage nationally. We do community education, such as what I'm doing today, and we have self-help materials that you can direct your clients to. For example, we have things on how to appeal CHC denials. We're working on a waiver eligibility document that should be out soon. We do a monthly email newsletter which provides updates on what's going on at the state and federal levels with healthcare and healthcare access. Our focus again is Medicaid, but we do cover other aspects of healthcare, including healthcare reform. And then we also do policy advocacy to increase access to uh, health coverage and services. We do most of this at the state level, and it is a significant part of my job but we also do it at the federal level.
1: Kate? Thanks, Mag. Sorry, thank you. This is Kate Bengratis. I'm a staff attorney at Community Legal Services. So unlike PHLP, we are just um, a Philadelphia-based organization, but we help a ton of people in Philadelphia across a variety of different legal service areas. So we provide free legal service um, services We do have income limits, but for older adults, they are expanded, so we do a fair amount of work um, in the long-term care context and disability context for people who are above sort of the basic um, legal service income limits. We assist in in terms of home ownership, housing, utilities, public benefits, disability, family advocacy for those involved in the um, dependency system, Um, language access services, just to name a few of the areas in which um, CLS does direct legal service work. In addition to direct legal service work, we also engage in litigation, administrative advocacy, community education, social work, and some of the systemic policy work that Amy described, often with PHLP as one one of our partners. I work in the health and independence unit, which focuses on the needs of older adults, people with disabilities, families with children, immigrants, survivors of domestic violence, and other people who are experiencing and trying to access a wide range of health and public benefits. So this includes cash assistance, food stamps, Medicaid, both regular and for long-term care um, and for other benefits. And we do a fair amount of work around nursing home rights, quality discharge, and also preventing guardianships. So today we're gonna cover kind of a couple pieces of how to access waiver services, which will allow older adults and people with disabilities to remain out of nursing homes, which now more than ever is incredibly important. Um, We're gonna start by covering just sort of the basic eligibility process for the waiver which is now all consolidated under the Community Health Choices waiver. For those who have been working in this area for a while, you might remember there used to be a whole host of different types of waivers. There's now just the one, they've all been consolidated. We'll then talk about how you're first found clinically eligible for the waiver, and then go on to the financial eligibility nitty gritty, and then finish up by talking a little bit about nursing home transition which is what happens when an individual who is in a facility decides that they would like to move into the community and how that process works. To start off, um, Amy, very smartly, (laughs) suggested we include a, a terminology slide because this area, like so many things in legal services, is riddled with acronyms. So here are some of the ones you'll probably hear us say today. I always try to say them out in full, But we have a ton of material to cover, so it's likely I'll inadvertently go back to acronyms. Um, These are really sort of the big ones that we will talk about. For my portion that I'm going to cover first on clinical eligibility, NFCE and NFI are going to be the key terms. NFCE means nursing facility clinically eligible, which means you're approved for waiver services. You've been found clinically eligible to need the level of care that's required for that program. In contrast, NFI means you are nursing facility ineligible. It definitely took me a while to kind of keep those straight when I first started, so I wanted to clarify that off the bat. All right. We're going to start with a little um, flowchart, which I created, oh sorry, this is actually the first one. This is a simpler flowchart. So there's two parts to waiver eligibility. The first part is that someone needs to be found clinically eligible, meaning that they meet that standard nursing facility clinically eligible, which we'll delve into quite a bit, um, a little bit later. Once they're found clinically eligible, we move on to the financial eligibility piece. And so we're gonna cover these in the order that they are handled by the, um, the systems that do this. This is the overall waiver application process in terms of how both the clinical and the financial parts go together. The first step is to contact the independent enrollment broker, which is currently Maximus, also called the IEB for short. It is possible to also contact your local AAA, your Area Agency on Aging instead, and have them kind of then move you to the IEB. Um, The most direct approach is probably contacting the IEB, but this just in case someone does contact their AAA, they will not be turned away. It's not sort of a, a wrong door. So enrollment broker's job is to answer questions about waiver services to schedule the first home visit, which pre-COVID was in person and now is generally taking place over the phone, but can take place in person. It is um, currently, I believe, up to the participant, but this is sort of something that's constantly in flux. Um, And they go through what type of documents the the applicant will need and what will be the next parts of the step. They also will send out the physician certification form to the applicant's doctor. The applicant's doctor needs to certify that they meet the um, level of care necessary for the waiver and return that to the IEB. As we'll talk about, this is one of the two parts of the clinical eligibility process. The second step will be to have that first visit either in person or now on the phone to go through the forms to discuss the long-term care needs um, this can include completing the PA 600 application if someone is not already eligible for medical assistance, and completing the parts of it that are specific to the long-term care application, which relates much more to um, financial documentations, including assets and other things. So at this point, the IEB should be collecting the documentation that will ultimately be needed to determine if someone is financially eligible. We move on to step three, where now the AAA comes into their role as the assessor for clinical eligibility. This would have been a second home visit, now likely a second phone call, and this is where the AAA will send have an assessor administer what is known as the Fed, which we're going to talk about a ton today. Fed stands for Functional Eligibility Determination. And it's the assessment tool now used by the Commonwealth to determine if someone is clinically eligible for um, waiver services. This visit is scheduled by the AAA calling the consumer to find a time to do it. Um, It has to happen within 10 days of when the person, the applicant calls the IEB. So it does move pretty quickly. Last year, there were some bottlenecks due to changes in the process. Um, We haven't heard of any major concerns lately, especially because phone interviews are probably speeding this up a bit, but it is important to be aware that there is a timeline mandated here. The fourth step is where the IEB re- reviews the two parts of the functional or the sorry the clinical eligibility, which is the physician certification and the Fed results. So the physician certification must come directly from the doctor. it must be sent back to the IEB. And then the Fed results are what we're gonna talk about for a good portion of today. Um, And we'll go through what happens based on those results. If at this point, it turns out that the person is found NFI because of these two forms, um, then the um, Office of Long-Term Living would issue a denial notice with appeal rights. If the Fed and the physician certification are both NFCE, that means the person has been found nursing facility clinically eligible, and their application goes to their county assistance office where they review financial documents to determine if there's any income or resource eligibility issues, if there's anything missing. If that's the case, they will send a letter. And if everything has been provided, or um, if everything has been provided, they will then send the PA-162 to approve or deny on the basis of that financial eligibility. If they are found um, ineligible at that point, you can appeal on the basis of of the financial determination. So clinical eligibility, the first part of becoming approved for the waiver. This all comes down to the definition of nursing facility clinically eligible, which I mentioned we'll be talking about a lot today. This is a fairly lengthy definition I think it's really important to spend some time with it and go through it and kind of pick it apart to really understand what this is trying to capture. It kind of has two parts, which I do want us to take a little time to look at. And these come from two different sources. One is from the state regulations, about who is eligible for what used to be called an intermediate care facility, um, which is now an outdated term Um, that is the the second blue bullet point. And the other part is from federal Medicare regulations um, defining who is eligible for medical coverage for skilled nursing facility level of care. The other thing about this definition that's really important is that it shows that it's both the physician certification that has to happen and that this person as a result of their conditions has specific needs or limitations that require certain care. This is important because in order to be found clinically eligible for the waiver you have to have the physician certification and that FED assessment saying you're NFCE. Although ultimately this is the definition that controls above all else and we'll talk about that how that plays in at appeals a little bit later on. So I'm going to quickly go through sort of what came before the FED and how the Fed is a little different. Those of you who may have been working in this area for a while, or people who were previously on waiver services and then weren't, might be familiar with with, what used to be called the level of care determination. This assessment tool was used for years and it was a much more, it was a much lengthier tool. (laughs) It was definitely very, very holistic. It was used in Pennsylvania up until April, 2019. And it asked a lot of questions about diagnoses and um, going through sort of all the different major body systems. It ultimately called for a lot of assessor professional judgment to determine whether the NFC definition was met. Ultimately, the Department of Human Services felt it was too subjective, the the results were not uniform and were too dependent on each assessor. And um, after convening a stakeholder group, they decided to pursue a new tool, which is from a consortium of researchers and practitioners called InterRI. InterRI has created tools um, that are research-based and are used across the country, often to determine the type and amount of services that people receive in um, Medicaid managed long-term care programs. As many of you might know, states are moving largely towards managed Medicaid long-term care, um, due in large part to ballooning um, costs <laughs> and the needs to address that, and these tools have been a big part of that. So many states use tools that are um, created by InterI, as now does Pennsylvania. So in terms of developing the Fed and how we got to the one that we are currently using, um, the Pennsylvania Department of Human Services contracted with the researcher at University of Pittsburgh, and they took a small subset of what is known as a much larger assessment that Interi has called the Home Care Assessment, and they created the tool just to determine whether someone meets the level of care. The focus here is on functioning, not medical conditions. So having a very severe sounding medical condition is not necessarily going to be enough to have you found clinically eligible. What really matters is what level of assistance someone needs or what they are unable to do for themselves it looks at five key domains which are also what will factor in heavily to service planning once someone is found eligible and it's time to create their person-centered service plan these domains are activities of daily living toileting which include toileting eating mobility and cognition and oh sorry (laughs) these are activities of daily living as well as eating mobility and cognition. Um, And by toileting also, it goes further into continence issues. Originally, the tool was a fairly simple algorithm that would sort individuals into levels of eligibility. Based on some concerns raised by stakeholders, there were changes that were made to ensure that um, people who were sort of in the the outsets, that their needs were more accurately captured. Um, and that it was closer to the results you would have received with the level of care determination. So there was a bit of playing around with this and really figuring out what information is needed, what counts and what matters where, um, but that's not to say that I think advocates don't have concerns still. As we'll discuss, there are many things that sometimes the Fed capture fails to capture, which are concerns and are the cases that I think PHLP and CLS often see. So the tool itself, this um, should be both, this is available on the plan website um, and has been, so should everyone should have access to this. The full Fed tool is a couple pages long. The interesting thing about this is that it is not, there's no questions written out. There's areas and activities and different things that someone either is is or isn't able to do, and the assessor is actually trained on asking these in a number of different ways. Looking at the sort of part that, um, the first part that I had snapshotted, this was on functional status, which is one of the really, really big parts of the tool, and it provides a little bit of an example of how it works in that you can see there are different tasks bathing, personal hygiene, dressing, walking, locomotion, transferring to toilet, toilet use, and eating. And then above there is the rating. And so the assessor can score someone anywhere from zero to eight on their ability to do this task and how much assistance they need. Zero is independent, Um, one is set up help only, two is supervision, and so on. It's important to note that eight means activity did not occur during entire period. And the period here that the tool looks at is the last three days. And this is because the interI researchers determine that that is the only time period that needs to be looked at in order to produce the most accurate results. There's definitely been a lot of discussion about this. I think in the advocacy community, we do have some concerns over that three-day look back. And it's very important that it is really clear, both from what the assessor is asking and what the applicant is stating in terms of what it means when something did not occur during the three-day period. For example, not eating or toileting during three days is generally a very concerning sign. (laughs) Is this not happening because someone is unable to, they don't want to, they don't have assistance? Those are things that really need to be clarified and often um, can be sort of issues within the Fed itself. The assessor is supposed to use the tool to ask a combination of questions, um, asking for demonstrations, which is much harder now to do because everything is done over the phone generally. Um, They're supposed to be both asking the applicant themselves and any family members or caregivers who may be present and they're supposed to review medical records if they are available. And if someone says, "I have this information from my doctor," I think it might be helpful. Um, let's see, if there's okay. So in terms of how this is administered, the full, the full Fed tool, as you'll see, has sections that cover demographics, cognition, mood and behavior, functional status continence, and treatments, and procedures. One interesting thing to note that we'll see when we get to the Fed tool translation matrix, which I know sounds really funny, but it's just the scoring, the mechanism by which the Fed is scored, is that not all of the items on the Fed count towards the score. There are some. There are only 20 out of 50, I believe, that actually count towards the determination of whether someone is NFCE or not. At the Fed assessment interview, um, as we discussed, as I mentioned before a little bit, the assessor is supposed to make sure that anyone who's involved in the applicant's care or can provide information about their functional needs is present. So this might include family members, it could include someone who is an informal caregiver, a neighbor, a friend, anyone who can provide insight and assistance on the questions. There's often questions that are either hard for someone to understand and talk about or uncomfortable to talk about because these are very, very personal issues and discussing what you are or aren't able to do, um, especially when it's recent and there's, a, it, there's, there's been a decline can be difficult. And also remember this is someone that the, the assessor is someone the applicant has just met. They don't know them at all. So it's a lot to kind of go into. Assessors are supposed to follow an ask, observe, confirm process. They do have an extensive training protocol that they follow that really focuses on this. It's not only about asking questions, but also about observing what others say, what the environment presents, if someone is able to do the things they say they need to do. And this is where there's a lot of concerns about issues that could come up with the Fed when it's being done remotely. Because it's so much harder to be able to assess someone when you can't see them face to face. Confirming answers is really important because someone might say that they're able to do things, their family members might be suggesting otherwise, um, shaking their head, a the person might say that they have no issues getting up and walking, but based on how they're presenting it appears that they have needs that they're not necessarily accounting for. So this is why the ask, observe, confirm model is what assessors are supposed to do. And based on that, it should be really clear that going through all these questions as you look at the full FED tool, is actually pretty lengthy. There's a lot of material in there. And as anyone who works in legal services knows, when you're interviewing clients, you really have to kind of funnel through the information You start with the basics, you get more specific, you need to really spend some time with someone often to get them to open up to you and to understand what their day-to-day is like. So an assessment should not take 10 to 15 minutes. Unfortunately, we do hear about this happening and it's a really big concern and we often get into what is missing and what wasn't covered and that can really affect fed results. Once the Fed assessor has gone through all the items, if they have internet connectivity, they should know the results right away and they can let the applicant know. What's really important to know is that the assessor can indicate if they disagree with the results. They can put it right into the tool itself. And they can indicate a a disagreement either way, that if someone was found clinically eligible but they think they're not, they were found clinically ineligible and the assessor thinks they should be. Anytime there is a disagreement, it does trigger a medical director review, which we'll talk about shortly. So here is the scoring tool, which has been called many different things. (laughs) Um, Translation matrix, I believe, is the official Department of Human Services title that they use. Um, but this is one of the things that just like the Fed tool itself and the NFC definition, I think it's helpful to spend a little time with and play around with a bit. So up at the very top row, we have columns A through H. These are different sort of domains from from cognitive skills, memory, um, functional status, ADLs, walking, medications, toileting. What you'll see is that in each column there's bullet points. These bullet points correspond to the item on the FED tool. So for example, if you're looking at column E, which are ADL activities, bathing, personal hygiene, dressing, walking, you'll see that these say D1A, D1B. If you look at the tool itself, you're able to see that these correspond to page 3 through i believe yeah just page 3 so page 3 of the full tool of the full tool goes through all of these items and you can see what counts and that some of these don't count so it's helpful to be able to kind of look at these two tools together and figure out what the information is on the tool and how it's feeding into the matrix in order to be found NFCE you need to either have what's called three partial deficits or a full deficit which means that your scores based on those ratings that we talked about of zero through eight on these items need to match the levels that are set for each column and this is where it can get a little tricky and it takes some time to get used to because it varies by um, by column there's ones that it's not possible to get a full deficit on such as uh, managing medications or memory or um, mental status, whereas there are ones that you can get a full deficit just based on your um, score of a couple items. I like to use E, which is the activities of daily living, as an example because this is really where a ton of needs come up for applicants. By scoring a three to six on two bullets, you get a partial deficit, but if you get three to six on three or more, it's a full deficit. And the thinking there is because that indicates that you have pretty significant need in multiple areas of ADLs. So ultimately, you're looking at where someone fits in terms of how much assistance they have or where their deficit is in different areas of the Fed and how that all totals up. This can be something that's a bit Tricky to work with at first and a little perplexing. Um, but after playing around with it a bit, I think most people do become comfortable with it. What can be frustrating is it feels very mechanical and kind of like an algorithm, which is one of the key criticisms of, um, of this assessment tool, and which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute. So I mentioned before that There's medical director review, which is triggered a couple of ways. So one way is if the Fed assessor indicates that they disagree with the result. The other way is if the physician certification and the Fed result conflict. So if if an applicant's doctor says, yes, this person is NFCE in my professional opinion based on their treating provider, but the Fed shows that they're NFI, that automatically means that the assessor has to submit the application, the Office of Long-Term Living's medical director. At this point, this is a paper review. So the medical director is just looking at the information from the physician certification and the Fed, which doesn't necessarily do a lot to elucidate the situation. So if you as an advocate are working with an applicant, we encourage you to submit any documentation or evidence you have, either letters from the doctor, medical records, information from the participant, their family, their caregivers, which can help clarify what was missed by the Fed. Um, There's a lot of different things that can be, cannot make it into the Fed for various reasons, which we'll talk about. Um, But this is the opportunity to try really quickly to, to clarify that and to provide information that might explain why this person really does meet the NFC definition. If there was something that went horribly wrong during the Fed, there was an issue that prevented the assessor from obtaining accurate information, you can also ask for a new Fed. Um, Examples of when this could happen that I've seen have been when um, an assessment was done in a language that the person was not comfortable with, someone who speaks primarily Spanish, but had an assessment in, in English, wouldn't really be able to effectively communicate. And that's a pretty good um, basis for getting a new FED right away or if the FED only took five or ten minutes which sadly has also happened. If at the end of the medical director review OLTL says that the person is still NFI this is when they would issue a notice with appeal rights and you're able to appeal and have a um, and request a hearing which we're going to talk about a little bit too. Once a year the Fed is used to reassess all participants' functional eligibility for LTSS. This is actually done differently during reassessments than it is at the outset for initial eligibility. As I mentioned, the Fed is just a subset of a much larger inter assessment on home care needs. So Community Health Choices service coordinators are required to do full interI home care assessments annually. And the portion of that that comprises the FED then is scored to determine if that person is still nursing facility clinically eligible. This information then goes to the AAAs um, who do what's called a desk review again, meaning just looking at the paper information, not speaking to the participant at all. And they compare two sets of FED data. So if it's somebody who it's just their second year in the waiver, they would look at the initial FED and the um, annual assessment, or they can look at 2 inter inter-I assessments that are a year apart, and they'll determine if there have been um, any changes. At this time, there should not be the need for a physician certification, unless the desk review finds that the status has changed from clinically eligible to ineligible. If that's the case, then the physician certification does need to be obtained. Um, The AAA should be, and the IEB should be the one coordinating this. And just like at the beginning, the doctor will have to send it back to OLTL. And this will trigger medical director review since we have those conflicting tools, a physician certification saying NFCE, and a fed result saying NFI. In terms of appeal strategies and how to approach an appeal, if ultimately, after a medical director review, an applicant is found NFI, they can appeal this and request a fair hearing. The best way to prepare for this is for participants and advocates to request copies of the completed FED. This will also give you, and the physician certification, sorry. Along with the two tools that we've provided today, the FED itself and the matrix, you'll have three documents which will allow you to fully understand what the assessment ascertained and how it impacts the person's scoring. So you can see where they came up short on the FED. Um, Maximus is able to provide this documentation. We will note that um, advocates should request um, a HIPAA release from their clients in order to get this. At the hearing itself, there are a couple people involved. The subject, there's someone called a subject matter expert, which can be an assessor or supervisor from a AAA. It doesn't need to be the person who did the assessment themselves, but somebody who understands how the Fed works and why this specific applicant's responses led to a finding of NFI. There's also people from the Office of Long-Term Living present but generally the doctor who was involved in the medical review does not attend the hearing. Assessors are expected to be able to explain the scoring for the ratings that have been provided. Um, And this is often just based on the notes that are included with the submitted FED in that the assessor who did the actual FED may not be the one at the hearing. As we said at the outset, while we have this new tool, or relatively new tool, the Fed, that's been in place since April 2019, it did not change the standard for nursing facility clinically eligible, clinical eligibility in Pennsylvania. And part of the reason for that is the Fed tool did not go through the regulatory process that would be necessary in order to change a standard for eligibility. So the Fed tool, is geared at trying to ascertain the definition of NFCE, but ultimately, the NFCE definition controls. So that means that at the hearing, there's two things that can be argued, and there's really no reason to not argue both ultimately. One is that the participant should have been found NFCE because the Fed somehow did not accurately capture functional limitations and needs. And in addition, that based on the NFCE definition, which controls, this participant does meet that and that they are NFCE. In terms of how to make these arguments, we found that a couple things that are very helpful, if someone's doctor can testify or provide letters or documentation, that can be very, very persuasive. Remember that this tool is based on a conversation. Um, It's not extremely lengthy often. And the assessor, while using professional judgment based on training, is not necessarily a clinician. The doctor can explain why this person really does need nursing facility clinically um, clinical care, and specifically how their condition impacts them um, in a way that an assessment can't capture. A participant also should be able to testify, and you should be able to prepare them to talk about what their needs are and what they, um, And sort of go through the definition of the Fed, sorry, the definition of NFC as well as the issues in the Fed. But it can be really, really important also to have family members or caregivers involved because often when someone applies for the waiver, their family and loved ones have been very, very involved with their care already. And they've been providing a lot of this informally, meaning without pay and just when they're able to. And they might be able to provide a slightly uh, more objective. Um, picture of where the person's limitations are. For example, if someone is in the early stages of dementia or another condition that um, impacts cognitive functioning, it may be really hard for them to talk about when they don't remember things, when they don't remember a family member's name or where they are or what they need to do. Whereas a family member can provide that insight. And the same can go for very sensitive topics like bathing and toileting. In terms of what you're asking for at a fed hearing, the first and most important one is that the judge should find that this person is nursing facility clinically eligible. That's the definition that controls. That's what you're ultimately going for. It's possible that in certain cases, it's also appropriate to argue that the Office of Long-Term Living did not meet its burden in proving that the person is not in terms of their response either to the medical director review or that it didn't do specific actions that were required to be taken. This is very, very case specific and we've only seen this come up a couple of times, but um, given that there's a lot of lack of clarity or transparency around the medical director reviews, I think it's likely to see this more and more because it's not always clear what they're reviewing and what the basis is for that determination. One option is that before the, the hearing, you can have a pre-hearing conference in which you settle the case through a stipulated agreement to do a new FED. This can be frustrating in that ultimately, you want your client to be found eligible. You don't want to have to um, have them go through a new assessment, but sometimes it is the simplest solution. If it's really clear why that FED did not work, and you think that that would be a better path to eligibility than going through a full hearing. This is a decision that we have to talk through with clients and really weigh the pros and the cons. Um, And I think it is very, very case specific. And lastly, if you are um, asking for a new FED, or if that is ultimately what you get as a result of this hearing, which I think from talking to advocates across the state I know is often what the ALJ decides, it's really, really important to, again, get that completed Fed from Maximus and look at it along with the the Fed tool and the matrix and to figure out what went wrong or what was missing. Some of the ones that I've kind of touched on briefly during the presentation is we're looking, we're supposed to be doing a three-day look back, but what does that mean? Was it really clarified why an activity didn't occur if it didn't. If someone says that they didn't bathe and it wasn't indicated that the reason is because they can't do it on their own, that's a major, major issue because that their actual functional ability is that they are unable to bathe without supervision or with a hold or with um, weight-bearing support. That needs to be clarified. It's important to talk through with the applicant what the assessment itself was like, how long did it take? What questions did the assessor ask? Did they ask follow-ups if you felt like the question was unclear or um, you didn't really quite understand what they were asking? Language access issues do still arise as we have seen. It's really important that someone is comfortable with the language that the Fed is administered in. If they have any issues understanding or comprehending it, They have the right to an interpreter, and that's really, really important. It's also really important that if there's family members or caregivers who are involved, that they be present and that the Fed not just take place at the time most convenient for the assessor, but it needs to be when works for the applicant and their family. We've really also tried to work on helping applicants feel empowered to try to slow down the assessment when it feels like it's going too fast and to let them know that they can ask for clarification if they don't understand questions. And they can allow their family members or caregivers to provide information. This is especially important with individuals with cognitive needs as well as brain injuries. And there's been a lot of concerns from the brain injury community around how this tool has impacted individuals who have brain brain injuries and both have different functional limitations and different ways of comprehending and responding to these questions. And lastly, again, this is a a, a quick assessment, even if it's taking 30 to 40 minutes, talking about really, really personal issues. And I've found that even clients who I've met a couple times might feel hesitant to discuss issues around bathing, dressing, and incontinence. And so it might be especially hard to talk about that with an assessor they've just met. It's important for advocates to really discuss why this is so important to the assessment and why it matters and to help people feel more comfortable discussing this in terms of their needs and how to make that clear if it's something that they're very uncomfortable with. I believe, I think that's all on the clinical eligibility portion.
2: This is Kelly, if I could just interrupt here. For the attorneys on the session today, if you could please respond to the first of the CLE question polls that um, I will be doing today. Uh, You'll have about a minute and a half that it's up that you can respond. And please feel free to continue. Thank you. Thanks, uh,
0: Kate. So this is Amy back again. Um, So I am now going to take you through the financial eligibility process. And some parts I'm gonna go more in depth on, some less so. Um, but this is really like, what happens once you're found clinically eligible? Usually, although somebody should be preparing for the financial eligibility while they're going through the clinical eligibility, they're really not gonna hear much from the CAO, in our experience, until they've been found NFCE. and. Usually, they won't even know that they've been found NFCE until they start going through this financial eligibility process. So, you'll definitely know when your client was found nursing facility ineligible because they will get a notice from OLTL. But once they're found NFCE, the, the whole process gets shifted over to the CAO. And that's when they start asking for all kinds of records. So I'm gonna go through the basic eligibility, and then I'm gonna get into some more complex eligibility because I wanna emphasize that just because someone looks like they might not be eligible uh, doesn't mean that's necessarily true. There are two workarounds for people whose income is a little higher. So there are three basic parts of financial eligibility for the CHC waiver, and really all home and community-based service waivers. It's income eligibility, resource eligibility, and then there's a look back of five years from the date of application to see how a person's assets were handled and whether they transferred any of those assets for less than fair market value in order to become eligible for Medicaid. So if if somebody does that, then they actually have a penalty period where they can't get on the waiver. So let me start with the income limit. The income limit in the waiver is pretty generous. It only looks at the applicant's income. So if somebody is married, you're not going to worry about what the spouse makes and earns or or any unearned income. And that limit in 2020 is 2,349. It goes up every year based on the uh, SSI rate. Um, So the types of income that count are all kinds. It's employment, we've got workers' comp, net rental income, dividends, interest, pensions, any kind of retirement, social security, disability, social security, retirement, support payments, and more. So it's really looking at all the income. And for the most part, it's looking at gross income without the usual deductions you would see in other Medicaid categories. Now, there's a little bit of an exception they're going to look at net rental income. For some of the self-employment income, they will deduct the cost of operating the business. Uh, but for the most part, we're looking at total income. And this is important, especially when you're looking at someone's social security disability or their social security retirement if somebody is, is, um, has the Medicare Part B premium deducted to directly pay for that, you wanna put that back in when you're figuring out the gross income. So it's, but it's pretty generous. Then we get to resources. And resources are um, also fairly generous for a Medicaid program in Pennsylvania and a little bit complicated if you get married. So for somebody who is single, the resource limit is $8,000. If somebody lives with their own children under 21, there is no resource limit, so that's great. Once that child turns 21, there is, so people need to keep an eye on that and make sure that they've got things managed and all in order before um, all the children turn 21 and leave the home. Um, and then there is, for married couples, and formula that's used where they determine a spousal share of the resources that the spouse can maintain. And in addition to that, there's also the original $8,000. So I am not going to go into a great deal about the resources. The best way to figure out what resources are counted and how they're counted is to really look at the long-term care handbook which is um, available online but i want to go through a few of the resources that are looked at so what is counted is some of the obvious things like cash bank accounts stock bonds mutual funds they count as a resource any vehicles although one vehicle can be excluded so if there's a um, couple and they have two vehicles, one of those is going to count because they're looking at everybody's resources or the both, the both spouse's resources. Um, property is counted. The principal residence, the residence the person lives in is not counted generally, but other property. So if somebody owns like 12 boats, they're going to count those boats. Maybe they count them as a vehicle. They go 12 houseboats, they're all going to count. Um, they also look at the applicant's retirement account. And if that person can access that, even if they have to get a penalty to access it, that is going to count. They're Depending on somebody's age and the level of disability, and really, I've looked at enough of these to know that you can't really tell whether someone can access them um, unless you really look into the documents associated with it. Um, but if they can access it, that will be considered a resource minus any early withdrawal penalty. And then life insurance that has a cash surrender value. This is usually whole life insurance, life insurance that doesn't end at a certain date, but ends when someone passes away. Um, If it has a cash surrender value, that is going to be counted, whatever the cash surrender value is. Uh, there There is a little disregard for that, so you have to look at the rules more closely so there 's a thousand dollar disregard for the policy um, and and if the face value of the policy is under a certain amount it won 't count at all but again, a number of things do count but there 's also a lot that doesn 't count, and this is where it 's important for to really explore what the person has and what their options are so ABLE accounts don't count. So people who've had a disability that is a significant disability with an onset date before they turn 26 are allowed to open up what's called an ABLE account. And this is an account where they can set aside money and use that money on qualified disability expenses, um, which can include things like rent to support somebody. There is a limit to how much you can deposit each year, which is $15,000, but this is something, this is a tool that some people are able to use as a planning tool if they want to get on the waiver and they can put some money in here and then it's excluded. It's not looked at to determine whether or not the person's resource eligible. It's also not looked at at, um, in determining, as we'll discuss later, whether the person transferred assets for the purposes of Medicaid eligibility. Similar to that, but a little less flexible, is a special needs trust. Special needs trust can be set up for somebody who's under 65 and has a disability. They have to be irrevocable in order to be excluded. That means the person can't revoke them and they have to be approved by the Department of Human Services. And there are a number of ways people set them up. Some people use a trust company um, or put their money into what's called a pooled trust where the the, uh, resources of different people are combined and managed together, but the person's person's money is still separately designatable. Um, Or somebody can set one up on their own, but the key is it has to be irrevocable the Department of Human Services has to approve it. And what, why these are allowed is because the, anything that's left in a trust when somebody who got Medicaid benefits passes away reverts to either the Medicaid agency, the Department of Human Services, or depending on the type of trust, to the trust company to be able to use for other people with disabilities. So as I said earlier, one motor vehicle is a, is excluded. Um, so you get to keep your car or the motorcycle and the principal residence. So that could be a home, it could be a condo, it could, it could be a houseboat. Um, so you're allowed to have one principal residence. Any income producing or business property is going to Uh, be excluded if it's essential for self-support. But remember, the income from that is gonna count towards the income limit. Life insurance that does not have a cash surrender value is also not gonna be included when they're counting resources. So this is usually term life, like a life insurance that lasts 20 years, 30 years, um, that usually doesn't have a cash surrender value. And then household goods and personal effects are also excluded So nobody, you know, you don't have to worry about the jewelry being counted or, um, you know, anything that somebody has, have their their books and things like that. So I'm going to talk briefly about married couple resources. And this is something that we don't usually get into a whole lot because um, if people look like they might be over-resourced, Um, A lot of our clients and I'm sure a lot of yours really don't have a lot of resources. So there's really usually not a big question about eligibility. um, When there's a spouse involved, but I wanted to touch on it because it's, it's always this open question. Like well, what about if someone's married and you know, for legal services attorneys just saying it's complicated is is not enough. So uh, you want to look at both spouses resources. Um, although you can exclude the non-applicant spouse's retirement, um, and then what's going to happen is the county assistance office is going to do a spousal impoverishment analysis. So, what is spousal impoverishment? Spousal impoverishment rules were set up in the night back in 1988 to protect people whose spouses were going into a nursing facility. Because what was happening is the spouse was going to the nursing facility. All of their money was looked at in combination, the income and the resources. And the money was being used to pay for the nursing facility care, even for people on Medicaid. And it left the spouse who was remaining in the community with nothing, just completely impoverished. So... Congress passed these rules to protect the community spouse from becoming impoverished and themselves becoming reliant on public uh, benefits. So it was a a way of sort of like saving money for the public and also helping the community spouse. It applies in the waiver context because for the resource rules, we're using the same rules as are used for people in a nursing facility for the resources. So, um, I mean, the nursing facility rules are a little more complicated, but it's basically these spousal and property protections do apply. And what happens is the county assistance office is going to figure out like what amount can be kept? What's the spousal share? The rule is they can keep half of the combined verifiable countable resources. The minimum amount is twenty five thousand seven hundred twenty eight, and the maximum amount that they can keep is quite high. It's one hundred twenty eight thousand six hundred forty dollars. So that's that's pretty significant. So I want to break that down a little bit. When I say verifiable resources, it means they have to actually show that it, it's an existing resource. Um, and then when I talk about the minimum amount, well, I said half, right? So um, If somebody has $50,000 and you divide that in half, it's $25,000. If somebody has $30,000 and you divide that in half, it's $15,000. Well, the rule is not that the person can only keep $15,000. The spouse can only keep $15,000. They can keep $25,728, all right? So it's so they want to have a minimum amount, but there's also a maximum amount and it's a little unfair because the more you have, everyone keeps about the same percentage of their resources, but the more resources you have, the larger amount you get to keep. (laughs) So if somebody has $200,000 in combined assets, you divide that in half and it's $100,000, So they get to keep $100,000. But they have to, and they have to deal with the the other amount. So some states have made it so the maximum amount and the minimum are the same, um, which makes it a little less unfair, but um, not all states. And we're using the federal. In Pennsylvania, we use the federal minimum and federal maximums. So but you can see there's a significant amount of assets that can be retained. In addition. After you divide in half, you can keep the other $8,000 that was originally allowed um, for the spouse who's on the waiver. Now, there is language in the long-term care handbook that says the, um, the spouse who is not applying for the waiver um, has to have their name on the combined assets so that the, the waiver applicant has to actually, actually transfer the assets. We actually haven't seen it happen. I think it happens more in the nursing facility context. Um, but I just wanted to flag that. I don't know that you'll see this because these are really higher resourced um, clients. So then what happens to the, to the amounts that are unprotected? What are you supposed to do with those? Um, so remember I said that the person with $200,000 is gonna ha- get to keep 100,000 or really 108,000 what happens to the other 92,000? They have to spend that down, and they have to spend it down appropriately, which means they can't violate the rule against using it um, in a way that doesn't have fair consideration. And I'll talk more about that. What do we do when we get these cases? We refer them to a private elder law attorney for asset protection assistance and advice because Unless somebody is going to do something like put something in a Supplemental Needs Trust or a couple of things like that, it's really, you've got $92,000 or you've got a fair, you know, $50,000 to play with, you we feel like people can use an elder law attorney and leave the legal services attorneys to help people who need more assistance financially. Okay, so now I'm gonna talk about the look back. So this is the third part of the financial eligibility assessment. We added income, resources, now this is the five year look back. What happens is the county assistance office is gonna look back at the applicant and spouse's financial records for five years. What they're trying to do is determine if there's any transfer by the spouse or the applicant of their ownership or interest in the assets. And if that transfer occurred for less than fair market value. What are they really looking for? They're looking for people giving away their assets, declining something like declining inheritance in order to get a Medicaid. Anything that would indicate somebody is trans- moving their assets around in order to get Medicaid eligibility. Uh, there are some exceptions transfers to a Supplemental Needs Trust, transfers to an ABLE account, those aren't going to count any of the excluded ones. Um, It transfers to a child under 21 or children 21 or older who have a permanent and total disability. Those aren't going to be considered suspicious. They might ask about them but they're not going to be a problem. There's also if a caregiver child lived in someone's home for two years let's say, it's, and the home is then given to them, that is also gonna be okay, or they're gonna ask for the records. So it's really, honestly, it's a pain. <laughs> um, what we tell people is, when you start applying for the waiver, be prepared and contact your financial institutions to get start getting a hold of five years of bank records and, and financial records. What they're gonna really look at is, usually what they do, the rule of thumb is, They'll look at monthly statements for two years, so the the past two years. So 2020, they'll go back to 2018. And then for the three years before that, they're going to want like two statements, so a January and a June statement for each year. What they're doing is they're looking really at anything that exceed, any transactions that exceed $500 in a month that are not explainable. And they will ask the participant to explain that. A good... um, worker will usually have a conversation and try to get more information and do it sort of in a casual way. But at a certain point, they're going to, if they make a conclusion that there was a transfer of assets, assets were given away or not, there's no documentation of how they were used, they're going to assume that it was done for less than for less than fair market value. And then the participants going to have to go through a rebuttal process, which is a formal process, to demonstrate that there was fair consideration. They didn't, they didn't, you know, sell the car for half price um, just to get on Medicaid. Uh, there was some other compelling reason why it was only half price. There was you know, problems with, with the motor, they were had to, you know, things like that, or that the transfer was not done to obtain or retain Medicaid. now if somebody has trouble especially during covid this is a problem getting a hold of financial records the county assistance office can accept the person's statement on an application that they didn't transfer any assets as long as there's nothing suspicious in what they have already looked at um so they have looked at some financial records and they don't see anything that causes concern um and as long as there's nothing in the um, asset verification system. So there's like a electronic system that verifies and pulls up assets. If there's nothing in there that causes concern. Okay, so now what happens if somebody is not able to show that whatever they did um, to move assets around um, was didn't have fair consideration, all right. So if the CAO says, no, you transfer for, this for less than fair market value, it triggers a penalty period. And that is a period of ineligibility for waiver services. So the way this is calculated is they take, you take the amount that they determined was transferred, divide it by the average nursing home private pay daily rate, and then you determine that show, determines how many days the person has to go before they can access waiver services. So I gave an example at the bottom, a nice easy one for me. So let's say somebody was found to have given away $8,882 worth of uh, money cash over the, during that five year period. The current 2019 average daily rate is 352.86. So, if you divide that into 8,882, you get a 25-day penalty period where the person's not going to be able to access any waiver services. Okay. And then, if anything in this process doesn't work out in someone's favor, as with clinical eligibility, there is the opportunity to do a financial eligibility appeal. This is, you can appeal the income or resource determination, which is really going to be a denial. Um, the transfer penalty application or its length, so if you disagree that there should have been a penalty at all, um, you know, so you're really going to try to argue to a judge that the transfers were for fair market value. And there's an opportunity to, to submit an undue hardship waiver if the transfer penalty would create an undue hardship on the applicants. Um, so if that is also denied, you can appeal that to an ALJ. So I want to talk a little bit about what to do if somebody has higher income. Um, and so we do take these cases, and I believe CLS takes them as well So, um, for some of their clients. So, just because that 2349 income limit is there doesn't mean there hasn't been efforts to work through it and get people who have slightly higher incomes on the waiver. So The first thing I'm going to talk about is something that's relatively recent in the last three years, I'd say, which is a qualified pooled income trust. These did not exist before uh, two or three years ago. And I'm gonna first explain why they exist. So there's a problem, which is, if you're in a nursing facility, you can get on Medicaid, even if your income is fairly high, because what happens is Medicaid determines, looking at your income, how much you should pay towards the cost of your care, and then they pay the rest. And so that's based on income and someone's income is $3,000, gonna, what's going to happen is that person's going to pay all but $45, which is their personal needs allowance they get every month, towards the cost of care. And Medicaid will pay the difference, to if there is any, to the uh, nursing home. The problem is, if you want to leave a nursing home and your income is $3,000 you're not going to be able to, or you're not, or let's say $2,800, you're not going to be able to access the waiver. So you're not gonna be able to get Medicaid services to support you in the community. Now there is um, an, an NMP, an MNO, there's a Medicaid spend downs, where you can spend down every month on medical care, any income but you can't spend it down generally to the waiver limit. You have to spend it down much lower, leaving people with at the most $800 a month to play with. So then you don't have enough money to pay your rent. So in order to address this, um, qualified pooled income trusts were created. And this is a way to access the CHC waiver, even if the person is over the income limit for HCBS, that's Home and Community-Based Services for the waiver. Right now, it's restricted to people $500 or over the income limit. So if somebody's income is 2,849, they're okay. They, they, might, they could, if they meet other criteria, use a qualified health pooled income trust to access the waiver. Um, CLS and PHLP are working on that $500 limit, because there are some people under 65 who we think legally should not have a limit. Um, so, but that's for another day. So what happens with a trust is every month, the person deposits the excess income, anything above the 2349 into the pooled income trust. Then there's a trustee Which is a nonprofit trust company that manages that income. Once that income is in the trust, it becomes invisible to Medicaid. I mean, not actually invisible because you have to work with DHS counsel to set these up, but it won't count against the person in terms of waiver income eligibility. So currently, there's only one nonprofit in Pennsylvania that manages these trusts. It's called the Achieva Family Trust. And there are a few costs to opening up a trust, um, $100 to open it. There's an administrative fee annually. And of course, the person has to deposit, transfer into the trust the amount that their income exceeds the waiver income limit each month. do these trusts, the person does need to be able to understand and sign the legal documents or have a power of attorney or court appointed guardian who can sign them for them. So, you know, obviously, as attorneys, we can help people understand the documents, but they have to have the capacity to do that or have somebody else who can do it. And PHLP actually does work with applicants, ACHIVA, and DHS counsel to set these up. So. They work differently depending on someone's age. So for somebody who is 65 or older, the money that they transfer into the trust must be spent down on the participant's medical or care expenses in the same month. So we call these spend down income trusts or income spend down trusts because really the person has to spend, still has to spend down their income. They don't have to spend it down as low as you would for a traditional Medicaid spend down. They only have to spend down to 2,349. But that does have to happen. It has to be spent on medical or care expenses. It has to be done in the same month. So what happens is the trustee will do things like, for example, pay an aid to provide home care until the amount in the trust that was deposited each month is depleted, or to pay old medical bills through a repayment agreement, so monthly repayment agreement, or pay rental fees on medically necessary equipment like a hospital bed or a CPAP machine. Now, when we look at these cases, we're always asking people 65 or old or do you have medical care expenses that this can be spent on? and people invariably point to their Medicare prescription drug costs, those cannot be used because once somebody's actually on the waiver, they are not going to have those costs anymore. So it has to be a cost they're still going to have. But what it means is this person 65 or older now is able to access the full waiver benefit package and all Medicaid services. If somebody's under under 65, there's a lot more flexibility here. And, this is actually fairly new. They used to. Everyone used to have to do the spend down. But recently, the Department of Human Services decided that people under age 65 didn't have to spend down their month, money in the same month and didn't have to spend it on medical expenses. They still need to have it spent by the trustee on things that support and are for the sole benefit of the beneficiary of the trust, the waiver applicant. But that's really the restriction. So it can accumulate over time so for a larger purchase. Let's say I'm over the, the limit by $100 for the waiver. I put $100 in a month and I want like a nice, I want like a MacBook Air Pro, whatever. So I, you know, after 10 months, <laughs> I turned to the trustee and they said, can you buy me a laptop? I want my new Apple. And they can go ahead and purchase that or they can get new furniture or clothing other, and other things, anything really, big uh, screen TV, bookshelves, um, or the money can be used on monthly expenses like utility bills or rent. Now, the key is the trustee is not gonna give cash or pay back the money. So once it's in the trust, it, the trustee really has the final discretion. They are usually pretty flexible, but it has to benefit the individual solely and it cannot be sent out back as cash because that would be like a form of money laundering, (laughs) moving it through the trust that way. So here's a quick example. This is Maria. Maria is an orange blobby-looking person. Um, She's 68 and on Medicaid in a nursing facility, and she wants to move to her own apartment where she'll pay rent, but she needs home care. Her monthly income is $2,700. So she works with an attorney to join a pooled income trust. She's $351 over the waiver limit, but each month she transfers that into the pooled trust and the trustee uses that to directly pay an aide, 30 hours of personal assistance services. She has an agreement with that aide that's signed by the trust. And then her community health choices plan covers the rest of the personal assistance services it's authorized and Maria's other Medicaid services. Now she is on the waiver and she can afford to pay her rent because she is only moving over $351 a month. I want to talk about one other way of accessing the waiver if somebody's income's a little higher. And this is MAUD, the Medical Assistance for Workers with Disabilities. I think a lot of you are familiar with it, but it's a backdoor into the waiver. It has an income limit of 250% of the federal poverty level, but as I'm gonna explain, there are disregards. So it actually can be quite a fair amount of money. The resource limit is higher, it's $10,000. That's for a single person or a couple. The person does need to be under 65 and they have to be working. Work is defined loosely, so it could be informal, there's no minimum hours, could Be babysitting, balancing your neighbor's checkbook, but it does need to be paid. The person does have to have a disability, which is someone who's on SSDI, social security disability, is automatically determined to have a disability, otherwise there's a medical review. Uh, in practice, the medical review team is fairly liberal with how it defines disability, and it does not mean the person can't work. In practice, somebody who needs um, medication to keep themselves alive, let's say insulin, could be found to have a disability under the MOD program. There is a premium required, and it's calculated at 5% of the applicant's countable income. So This is a monthly amount paid to the Medicaid program to allow a person um, to be on Medicaid through the MOD program. So income eligibility is um 2,659 for someone who's single, for someone who's married, it's 3,592. You count both spouses' incomes. And there are disregards, which for the unearned income, like social security disability, and for earned income. And I'm going to actually give you an example instead of just reading these bullet points. So I will do that in a minute. And the $10,000 resource limit includes the spouse's resource, it includes a primary residence, one vehicle, and any of the other re- resources that you generally see listed in the Medical Assistance Eligibility Handbook for any kind of SSI-related categories of Medicaid. Watch out for retirement accounts, they count. And people forget this because when you're working, you might have a retirement account. And we've had clients accumulate uh, too much in their retirement account and lose MOD eligibility because they go over the $10,000. The five year look back still applies if somebody wants to use MOD to get on the waiver. Generally, there's no five year look back for MOD. But if somebody wants to get waiver services once they're on MOD, there's a five year look back. So this is Chris, Chris has $1,000 in social security disability and $3,000 from work. So to calculate how much, so that's $4,000 a month, there's no way Chris would normally be able to get on the waiver with its $2,349 limit. But if you apply the disregards, $20 you take from the unearned income. You take $65 from the earned income and divide it by two. You combine the totals, and his countable income is only $2,447.50. That is lower than go back. The mod limit of $2,659. And therefore, Chris is eligible for mod. And because he was already determined clinically eligible for the CHC waiver, Chris is eligible for the waiver too. How about that? It's pretty it's pretty good benefit. He is gonna have to pay a premium for his insurance, but the waiver benefits will out far outweigh the cost of the premium. All right, the last thing in that I wanna go over. Pretty quickly, because you're not, this is something that's not really about eligibility. This is about getting out of a nursing home when somebody's in one. So people who are in nursing homes and on Medicaid are in Community Health Choices. That's how the the Community Health Choices program covers people in nursing homes. So there are something called nursing home transition services offered by by the CHC plan to assist people in moving into the community. Is really critical as we both Kate and I said during COVID. Um, this is not a fast process we like to try to work with people to move it along though and the way someone accesses it is initially they talk to their service coordinator who works for the CHC plan or is um, contracted with it and that person is supposed to connect the nursing home resident with a nursing home transition provider the provider works up a plan to move the person into the community and there's a lot that goes into it but i just want to highlight a few things which include housing pre-tenancy and transition services so this is help locating and applying for appropriate housing uh, community transition services are available this is one-time cost to facilitate the move so it's a lifetime limit up to $4,000 dollars, although some of the CHC plans give a higher amount, but the, the amount that OLTL well, has is4,000. And that can cover things like initial moving expenses, the initial deposit, furniture household project, uh, excuse me, household products. And then they also assess the need for and facilitate access to the services. So the nursing home transition team and the service coordinator will say, this is how much home care you're going to get. We'll put a ramp in. Here's the hospital bed, the durable medical equipment. And, oh, yeah, we also can provide services to help you sort of reclaim your community living skills. So it's just an important benefit available to people on Medicaid in nursing home. Can hear Kelly coming on.
2: Um, hi, this is Kelly. Um, I'm going to launch the second of the CLE Box poll for attorneys and while we are doing that we do have a question if you'd like me to read it to you. Sure, go ahead. Okay. In what situation do we imagine a client is NFCE and able to earn $3,000 per month in employment income? Does this happen?
0: Yes, I have clients who are working. They need assistance with things like transferring in and out of a wheelchair for toileting. They, They might need assistance with bathing and dressing. So I have several clients who are working full time, who are on social security disability, and who are, um, in fact, I have a client who's just at the very tip of the mod limit, they're $10 under uncountable income, um, who's also on the waiver.
2: Okay, and I'll just read this too. David Gates said, yes, it does. I have a couple of clients who have no independent mobility and rely on power wheelchairs, so quality for waiver, so qualify for waiver but have full- time jobs. So anybody else any comments or question? Please type them in the chat box right now. and I'm not seeing any other questions or comments coming in. So Kate or Amy, do you have anything else? Uh, This
0: is Amy, I do not, but I I do wanna thank everybody and remind people that they can reach out. Uh, First of all, you can definitely reach out um, if you have questions that come up afterwards. Um, and reminded people of our intake lines for community legal services and PHLP. And in terms of the trusts that we discussed, the income, pooled income trusts, please feel free to reach out. This is a project of ours right now. So if you run into somebody who wouldn't be able to help because they're over income but think they might benefit from a trust, please do refer them to us. This is an income trust. We do not do the resource trusts.
2: Okay. Well, thank you to Amy and Kate for being here with us and sharing their time and information. Thank you to everyone who participated in the webinar, and I hope you have a good rest of the day. Take care.